And Lord, that is our prayer as we bow before you. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And those words are written down for us in a book called the Bible. We love this book because it is the reflection of your character, of your will, the promises of your love. So open your word today that we might behold wondrous things and that our lives would be transformed by it. You've exalted your word above your very name. Exalt your word in this place by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The details might be different, but the story is the same. We read about it often in our newspaper. It goes something like this. A person who has lived an exemplary life is urged by some friends one night to go out and they have their very first drink and then another and then perhaps another. They get behind the wheel of their car and driving home, they have an accident. They damage the car, they hurt themselves, but the tragedy, real tragedy is they hit a pedestrian on the way home and take a life. Sitting in the courtroom where the family of the bereaved is nearby, they express their sorrow. They wish that night never would have happened. They mention that how, how many times in their life they avoided anything like this and they lived a good life, but one night, just one unguarded night, one wrong move. And now they're going to have to live with the sad consequences for the rest of their life. The details are different, but the story is the same. And maybe the consequence is not so severe, but all of us can remember a time when we said something we wish we could retract. We've done something we wish we could erase. And perhaps we live with the sad consequences of those foolish moments, maybe just one moment, one false move, and boom, our lives seem to be tainted. That, my friend, is a biblical story. And we read about it in Numbers chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, let me urge you to turn to Numbers chapter 20. We're going to read about a good man named Moses who lived an exemplary life, but one false move. And disaster strikes. We are in the town of Kadesh. Let me give you just a little bit of background on how we got there. The, the movement of the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land really are divided into three categories. The map that we have on the screen shows you the first movement. That's leave, leaving Egypt and going down south, the, the Sinai Peninsula, to the very southern tip and to Mount Sinai. So they travel out of Egypt. God gives them wonderful victories against enemies. He provides water and manna, and he brings them to Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments, the pattern for the tabernacle and other laws uh, to live by. They spend about a year at Mount Sinai. 
The second leg of their journey is when they leave Sinai and begin to travel north, and they go to the city of Kadesh Barnea, from which they send out 12 spies, symbolized by the yellow arrow. Now you can read about this in Numbers 13 and 14. You remember the story, don't you? Uh, it's been about two years now that they've been in the wilderness. They get to Kadesh Barnea, and God has the land for them. All they have to do is go in and possess it. They send the spies in to see the best approach. But the spies come back. Ten of the twelve say, we can't do it. Giants in the land. We'll be, we'll be eaten alive. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And unbelief causes the people to leave Kadesh Barnea, not going north, but to wander in the wilderness. That's the end of the second leg of the journey. Here's the third leg of the journey. They spend the time in the wilderness going in circles. By the way, they come back to Kadesh Barnea after 38 years, almost 38 years, after the spies said, don't go in, they wander around, and now they're back at Kadesh Barnea. And that's where the text picks up for us in Numbers chapter 20. Notice verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they camped or stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died, and she was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Moses is going to make one false move, but it starts out with a difficult trial that the people of God faced over and over and over again. The first part of this narrative simply shows us that trials come along the way of life. That we face them on a regular basis. It's not surprising. It's normal. And Moses faced two trials. Trial number one, his sister died, Miriam. Now, if Moses is the meekest man who lived on the face of the earth until Jesus, and that's what the Bible says in Numbers 12, he was a man of sensitivity. He was not a hardcore leader who could not feel uh, the, the hurt and the wounds of his own people when they didn't follow him. And now probably drained emotionally by the death of this loved one, Miriam. Think about it. She was the one who saved Moses when he was a little baby. I mean, it's God's work, to be sure, but she was the human instrument God used. She was the one who arranged that Moses would be nursed by his own mother in his early years. <clears throat> when they crossed the Red Sea... It was Miriam who sang the praises and led the women in praise. That was the work of his dear sister. <clears throat> Thank you, dear brother. <clears throat> but there was one moment when Miriam blew it. 
It's Numbers chapter 12. She and her brother Aaron stood up before Moses and said, Are you the only one that can lead the people Israel? Are you the only one that God has spoken to? Are you the only authority around here? And Miriam was punished in a very clear way with a horrible skin disease. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Numbers, or book of Deuteronomy, excuse me, remember what happened to Miriam along the way. One night, one day, where she made a false move. And now she is not going to enter into the promised land either. And although this fulfilled the word of God that said all the old generation is going to pass away before the new generation goes into the land, it was hard on Moses to lose his older sister. And I think he's grieving. Now add to that the murmuring of the people. Notice the Bible tells us that they gathered in opposition against Moses. They rebelled. They quarreled and blamed him. And I think this is a bit melodramatic here. Uh, Why didn't you just let us die in, in Egypt with everyone else? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Was it so that we could die in the desert? This is the same song they've been singing over and over again. I'm sure Moses was tired of hearing it. By the way, it says here, we wish we'd have died with our brothers who fell before the Lord. What does that mean? Well, maybe, maybe at the incident of the golden calf when the sword of the Levites killed 4,000 or the plague that followed that killed many more. Or maybe when Korah and his followers who were rebelling against the Lord were swallowed up. Maybe that's what they're referring to, but they'd rather take death than trial. And then notice they say, this is a terrible place where we are. By the way, they're there by God's appointment. God's been leading all the way. This is a terrible place. This land has no grain, no figs, no grapevines, no pomegranates. Did you know that they just described the promised land that they could have had had they obeyed the Lord 38 years before? This this land was filled with this very stuff. You see, when we, we refuse to obey the Lord, refuse to do what God says, that's when we receive less than God wants us to receive. And the blessings that God had for his people were lost because of unbelief. And now they're quarreling again. Uh, The big problem here is the lack of water. This is a necessity of life. And it's sometimes the trials that you and I face that bring out the worst in us, don't they? Difficulties can bring out the best in us, but sometimes they bring out the worst in us. And here is the same old line. There's no water, and we need water. And I can understand that, but it sounds so much like Exodus 17. But there's one big difference. Exodus 17, when they didn't have water at Rephidim and they crawled out to to God or complained to Moses the very first time, that was at the beginning of the journey. This is near the end. This is almost at the end of the 40 years wandering. You know who's complaining now? The new generation. Almost all the old generation is gone. There's a few of them left because they could say, 
why did you bring us out of Egypt? But many have passed away, and the new people have come up. Now, it may be a new generation, but it's new growth out of the old stock. (laughs) And they learned well from their parents, didn't they, how to complain? Isn't that a terrifying moment when you see something in your child and you are irritated with it and it's offensive to you and then you realize that's exactly what you do? Has that ever happened to you? The new generation was just like the old. And so had these people cried out to God as they should have, God would have blessed. But they attacked their leaders. If their concern had been transmitted into prayer before a generous God, soon he would have bountifully given them all that they needed. But they complained. Ray Brown, the Old Testament scholar and theologian, said they opposed God's servants. They minimized God's power. They resented God's will. We're in this terrible place. They forgot God's promises And they despise God's generosity. Wow, if that isn't the church of Jesus Christ today. Our trials sometimes bring out the worst in us. And we complain against God's providence, against God's leadership, and forget his promises and his goodness. Longing for what they desired, they ignored what they already had. God was with them. Well, the second part of this narrative is prayer. And prayer is the right response to our trials. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron went uh, from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. You think that ever got old? I hope not. But you and I have a tendency to enjoy the blessings of God with such constancy that we have a tendency to take them for granted. I hope that wasn't true of Moses. He bowed down before the Lord. There's humility. And the glory of the Lord, the cloud appeared, and the Lord said to Moses, here's my action plan, Moses. It's pretty simple. Take your staff. I want you and your brother to gather the assembly together. I want you to speak or command the rock before their eyes, and when you do, it will pour out water. So much of water, such an abundance of water, that not only everyone will have their thirst, thirst quenched, but the livestock will drink as well. There is nothing in the text that shows God being upset with his people, right? There's nothing in the text that shows that he is berating them that he's criticizing them, that he's attacking them. He just says, take your staff, gather the people, speak to the rock, and you'll have plenty of water. That's the mercy and the grace of... There is so much grace in this chapter. It is amazing. And here's one example of it. Now that leads us to verse 9. And the next movement in the chapter is this response of unbelief on the part of Moses. And I really think unbelief is nothing more than our internal pride being exposed. It's the rebellion of our heart on display. 
unbelief. We don't do what God has told us to do. By the way, in the Old Testament, unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. You can't have one really without the other. And I think it's true today. Moses, the Bible tells us, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence. That's good, just as God commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. That's good, just as God commanded. But then Moses said to the people, listen, you bunch of rebels. Must we bring water out of the rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Something was simmering in the heart of Moses that now was being exposed and we're going to see from some verses following that this is unbelief. Now Moses was partially obedient, by the way. Did you note that? He got the staff and he gathered the people. Two out of three is not bad. Which is what you and I often say to the Lord. Right? Lord, my obedience, it may not be complete, but it's partial. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's like King Saul, who was told to eliminate the Amalekites and all of their animals. Went to battle and defeated them clearly, but he kept the king of the Amalekites, and he kept some of the animals, he said, for sacrifice. And Saul comes and says, did you do what God said? And King Saul says, yes, I did. Did what God told me to do. Samuel says, how come I hear the sheep? And what about this ugly king over here? What did, why is he here? And Saul said, oh, I kept some of the sheep for sacrifice. And that king, you know, we want to deal with him in a special way. But I obeyed God. No, you didn't. Because partial obedience is disobedience. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses spoke to the people. And boy, did he give them an earful. It says he called them rebels in verse 10. Notice this verse from Psalm 106. It gives us a little more insight into what happened here. It said, By the waters of Meribah, they, the people, angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God. And rash words came from Moses' lips. That's taken from a Hebrew word, Bata, which means loud shouting in an angry spirit. Vehement words meant to wound. Rash words are usually words that we speak without thinking. And they're words that harm and hurt other people. You see, Moses is not just in a gracious and pastoral way rebuking the people. He's letting them have it. You bunch of lousy people. And I can't, I can't imagine all the other adjectives he might throw in there to berate them and belittle them. And God never said to do that. He said, speak to the rock, not to the people. Moses sinned by speaking to the people and calling them rebels. By the way, who's the rebel now? 
Secondly, he sinned when he kind of took credit for bringing the water to the people. Must we bring you water out of the rock? It's interesting, when you do something so often, you begin to forget that it's all done by the mercy and grace and power of God, and you begin to think you do it by your own might, by your own strength. Right? And thirdly, he sinned by striking the rock. Now, that worked once before, back in Exodus 17. In fact, God told Moses to strike the rock. But this time he said, speak to the rock. Don't strike it. You know, we have a tendency to think, well, God blessed this form, this method before, so he'll always bless it. And we begin to sanctify forms instead of the God who empowers them. We began to think that methods are sacred. God says, I don't want you to do that, that water from the rock thing the same way. I just want you to speak, and I want a silent demonstration of my amazing power. Just command the rock, Moses, and water will come out. You don't need to do anything else. But Moses somewhere lost his cool. And he spoke to the people berating them and then he took his staff and he slammed it on the rock and my guess is he waited for water to come and it didn't come and he slammed it again and one of the most amazing things about this text is water came from the rock isn't that grace and the people out there didn't know anything they might have said hey what's gotten into this guy i mean he's a little wild today but they got their water and they thought everything was kosher by the way the appearance of outward blessing does not always indicate the blessing of God on the prophet, on the process. There were problems in the heart of Moses, and the people at this point didn't see it. He misused the gift that God had given him, the rod. Probably thought it was his, like displaying its power. Sometimes you and I misuse the gifts that God has given us instead of using them for a glorious purpose to, to exalt his name and magnify his goodness. We use them for self-serving ends. God has given to each one of us a gift. Use it for his kingdom. Moses misused the gift. So in a moment of testing, he lost control. He did something that he deeply regretted and he'd have to suffer the sad consequences for the rest of his life. F.B. Meyer put it this way, just one little act, seemingly small in the grand scheme of things, yet this one act blighted the fair flower of his noble life and kept that courageous soul from the reward which seemed so nearly within his grasp. We're only a few months away from the people of God going into the promised land. And he doesn't get to go in. Notice the discipline of God. Because disobedience always brings discipline. That's verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, and he said to Aaron, because Aaron was involved in it, because you did not trust in me, there's lack of faith. You did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land that I will give them. 
I am amazed that God's grace brought water out of the rock when Moses struck it. But you have to remember this. God does, does not deal with us after our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Psalm 103. So he pitied his people and gave them water from the rock. But Moses is barred from taking the people into the land. Why? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. That's his strongest point. Faith. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Moses did that. By faith, Moses is in Hebrews chapter 11. And the devil loves to attack us at our strongest point, just like he did Abraham, who was a man of faith. But he lied about his wife to protect his own skin. Or like Peter, who was a courageous soul, but cowered before a young girl at the crucifixion of Christ. The devil likes to attack us at our strongest point. Perhaps because we think we're beyond being tempted in our strong suit. Moses did not trust the Lord. And it was given evidence by the fact that he took matters into his own hands. He disobeyed the word of God, thereby not making God holy in their sight. What does that phrase mean? Well, the word holy means set apart. Here was a unique opportunity for Moses to show that God is set apart for man. That God is holy, is different, is unique, is special. That he's glorious. He's not like us. He forgives sin. He's a God of goodness and generosity. Moses, show them that. Just speak to the rock and I'll do the rest. But no, Moses took control. It was all about him. He was wounded by their words and he calls them rebels. And he strikes the rock and... God is robbed of an opportunity to show how different and holy he really is. You see, every time you and I sin, we fail to obey God's word. And we fail to set God apart as being special. We count his word as common. And we rob people of an opportunity of seeing the holiness of God. You don't sin to yourself. Your sin detracts from your ability to be a channel of God's holiness and God's majesty and God's glory and God's blessing to others. Just one sin. Sow seeds of disobedience and be sure you will reap a harvest of discontent. And that's the life of Moses. Someone said that Moses didn't respect the rock. The rock is a symbol of God, Deuteronomy 32.4. He's our rock. His ways are perfect. We build our life on the rock, Christ Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Maybe smiting the rock shows disregard to God. But the point is, Moses did not obey by faith. And his unbelief cost him a trip to the Holy Land. 
So what is Moses going to do? Discipline follows disobedience. So the seeds of disobedience reap the harvest of discontent. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 3. I have it on the screen for you. This is Moses speaking to the people of God. And this is what he often said to God during this time. Lord, just let me go and see the good land. Let me see the land beyond the Jordan and the land of Lebanon. And now Moses addresses the people. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Moses, that's enough. I don't want to hear about this anymore. That's heartbreaking. A guy who had invested his life among unbelievable odds and demonstrated faith for so long, in one moment loses it all. Yes, my friend, sin has consequences. You cannot play with sin and win. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, God will never let his people sin successfully. If you are sinning successfully, maybe it's because you're not one of his people. He disciplines those he loves. And sin is serious. And Moses lost the promised land, even though he pleaded, Lord, let me go, let me see it. And the Lord said, that's enough, Moses. I don't want to hear anymore. So the big lesson of this chapter is, yeah, one sin and you could lose a lot. But I'm glad it doesn't stop there. Because there's one final point I have to bring to you. And it's that grace is greater than all our sin. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. This is the Lord Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Brought them to a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon. And verse 2 says, And Jesus was transfigured before them, so that his face was shining like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Another text said, whiter than any laundry could ever make them. Than any bleach could ever bleach them. You see, his, his deity was somehow coming out of the pores of his humanity. And the light show was an astounding thing of the glory of God. Oh, and get this. Look at verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah were there too. Moses got to the promised land. Is that not grace? This is the... The denouement of it all. This is God's summary of the whole account. This in one nutshell is a verse that tells us though your sin is great and it has consequences. Where there is repentance there is forgiveness and my grace is greater than all your sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Sin that exceeds our a grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary Mount outpoured. That's where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? All our sin. Say it with me. 
all our sin. Praise God for His grace. Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, there may be someone who, maybe many of us, are saying, I remember that time when I said that, and I wish I never would have. I did that, and I wish I could erase it from the memory of my life. And there are consequences that still I have to bear today because of that foolish action of the past. I want you to know that sin is serious and we shouldn't play with sin. But when we do fall, there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the blessed Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is grace. Cry out to God right now, will you? Whatever that sin is, ask the Lord's grace to conquer it. Thank God for his unmerited goodness to you. And set about your life obeying God in every part. For if we refuse to do what God says, we will not receive what he longs to give us. Blessings untold. Let's pray.